Our uh, reading for today is printed in your bulletin, or you can turn with me in a Bible to Mark chapter 10. The story doesn't need much introduction, and so let me just go ahead and, and, and read, and, and then we'll, we'll take it from there. As Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery. Do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of God will stand forever. You pray with me. Our Father, surely this belongs in the category of the difficult sayings of Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to see and our hearts to understand and be moved by the truth that Jesus is communicating to his disciples and to us, to soften our hearts and lead us not in despair, but in paths of hope and of righteousness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have to share this story to start with. When Olivia was uh, young and, and um, I don't know how old, but before Joseph was even born, we took them to a, um, a live nativity scene or kind of a similar, somewhat of a live nativity scene where they had camels in a, in a barn. And this is really funny. The camels, you could pet the animals. And there was a baby camel there and she wanted to pet the baby camel. And the camel reached out its head and bit her hand and wouldn't let go. 
And young as she was, she just repeated these words, camel bit my finger. Over and over, it stuck with her for a long time. I wonder if she still remembers it, do you? I know, I'm embarrassed. I don't do it often, but that is one of the things that whenever I read about camels, I think of this, this story. It's a, we don't have camels around much anymore. We don't see them on a regular basis, but for the people of Israel, the camels were, were everyday things as commonplace as cars are for us. Today, for Jesus to explain this concept in terms of a camel going through the eye of a needle was very familiar to the people around and the impossibility of it is absolutely certain. Now, people have tried to explain this story away or made it a little bit less difficult by identifying one of the gates in Jerusalem, kind of the night gate after they had closed the main gate, a smaller gate that could be secured more easily, and saying that somehow that is referred to as the eye of a needle, and camels sometimes after hours would have to be pushed through this gate. That's a dubious claim. The, the, even the, the idea that that was called the eye of the needle, I don't think is well founded with any kind of historical documents, and it's better to understand Jesus' explanation of this in the simple terms that the disciples understand it, and that is, this is something that is impossible. Our saying today is not a snowball's chance in hell. But what is impossible with human beings is possible with God is what Jesus says to the people. And he does this in the gospel writers. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell this fairly long story. And they place it, all of them, at this important crux in the narrative of their gospels. Right before Jesus goes into Jerusalem. Right before he enters the center of the kingdom as people have understood it. It's that point in the story that sets up Act 3. If Act 1 was Jesus establishing with his disciples and with the people around who he is. And Act 2 were these chapters 9 and 10 where Jesus is busy teaching his disciples carefully. Act 3 is... The Passion Week. When Jesus enters into Jerusalem and he does what is unfathomable for any true leader, any true king. He goes in with the express purpose that he would die. And so this story at this crux in the narrative serves the important purpose of setting up that whole week. And explaining how Jesus' work on the cross is the impossible work of God made possible. The bringing of salvation to somebody who couldn't save himself and that somebody isn't just some, it's It's everybody. It's everybody. The disciples ask this poignant question, if this guy couldn't be saved, then who can? Now this guy, 
The rich young man here in Luke, it calls him a rich young ruler. We don't know what he ruled over, but surely if he had wealth, it also involved him having servants and other people who worked for him. He had command over things. We don't even know how he got his wealth. But this is interesting. This man not only was wealthy, like, say, Herod and the rulers around, or like Matthew and some of the other tax collectors who had gotten their wealth by stealing from fellow Jews. This man had gotten his wealth in the right way. There's no reason to think when he declares his innocence, his freedom from this guilt, that uh, he had not transgressed any of these commandments. All of them I have kept. There's no reason to think that the letter of the law he had not kept from his birth. <laughs> the kids aren't getting it today. Sometimes I get it, sometimes I don't. I thought the camel might have gotten him. <laughs> I'm not a big late-night television person, but uh, there was a sketch that I think it was Conan O'Brien used to do. Maybe he still does it. It was where he imagined what uh, the children of certain celebrities would look like if they were married or if they are married. And he would take the pictures or pictures of each of them and take the absolute worst characteristics, physical characteristics of each, and then mix them together, amalgamate the two so that it was the ugliest child possible. Well, there were two parties in, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Israel at this time that you come across their names all the time in the, uh, in the New Testament. They were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And of course, when two celebrities marry, they're usually attractive and their babies are even more attractive to them than they are because the babies, they don't take the worst attributes, they take the best attributes, they come out beautiful. Well, this man was sort of the best attributes of both the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You see, the Sadducees had power and influence and wealth. But most of them had either gotten it or held on to it by compromising their commitment to God's commandments. They gave in. They aligned themselves with the Roman powers. They collected taxes or they did different things. The Sadducees weren't the tax collectors, but they, they did what they had to to hold on to power. On the other hand, there were the Pharisees who usually did not have much power. Not much wealth. They had influence over people, but they didn't have political clout. They followed all the rules. But here in this one man, this rich man, you have the coming together of both, the best of both of these parties. And a guy with wealth and who kept the rules. 
This was a sign of success by all measures. God's commandments tell us that if you follow them, it will go well with you in the land. The principles of Proverbs say that righteousness does end in wealth. The laments of so many psalms, Psalm 72, Psalm 73, ask God the honest question, why do the wicked prosper? When the righteous are oppressed and poor. You see, because the principles are not to be confused with the promises. The principles that righteousness brings wealth has to have to be understood in the broader context of redemptive history and history of history itself. And history itself is full of this overarching cycle where those who are oppressed, those who are poor, those who are outcast, hear the gospel. Christianity comes into a place that is wicked, where corruption is rampant, and it changes people, and it renews their spirits, and it gives them the ability to bless one another instead of hoarding. And cultures rise up with success on the shoulders of that. And then that success turns into greed and holding on to the power. And of some in that culture grabbing on to the power and taking advantage of others for their own benefit and cultures decline. And as Benjamin Franklin said, religion begat prosperity in the Religion begat prosperity, and the daughter devoured the mother. But that's never the end of the story with Christianity. You see, the interesting thing about Christianity, especially when you compare it with other world religions, think about this, other world religions, at least the major ones, they stay geographically centered where they started. Eastern religions, Islam, even uh, Judaism to some degree, although I would claim that Judaism is actually Christianity, uh, fulfilled in Christianity, not that they don't need Christ. But other world religions tend to be centered. Isn't it interesting that if you look at Christianity, the power center of Christianity shifts. Oftentimes it takes hundreds of years to see it shift, but it shifts and We should not be so arrogant to think that the power center of Christianity will not shift from Western uh, European American centers as it is right now to the burgeoning places of, uh, of of Christianity like Africa and even South America. Cut off a little bit on that. It was an important point, but let me bring us back to the text here. 
and say, this man was, he was good. He was a good man. And Jesus wants to highlight how good he was by even pointing out in, in, in responding to the man's introduction when he says, good teacher, Jesus pushes back on that, assuming that this man thinks that he is good, knowing the man's thought himself, he asks this important question, why would you call me good? And he makes a simple point, who's good but God alone? He rises, raises the bar. You can read into that, that Jesus is saying, yes, I am good because I am God, but that's not the point he makes here. You see, he's pressing back on this man, turning the mirror back to him. He says, you know the commandments. And he lists off the second table of the law. The laws that have to do with how we love one another. And this man says, I haven't done any of those things. I have not got my wealth, in other words, by taking advantage of others. And Jesus presses in further, but I want you to notice that when he presses in, he does it in a very particular way, and the gospel writers don't always make this point, but what does it say that he did? He looked at him. He made eye contact with him. And more than that, Jesus loved him. Now, how did he love him? In that one brief encounter, what does love look like? Earlier we used the psalm that repeated the phrase, the steadfast love of the Lord. Steadfast love in the Hebrew language is this one word, just five simple English letters in the transliteration of, it's called chesed. And it's this word that is so full of goodness that you just can't translate it with one word. And they, they, the, the translators into English limit themselves by just using two words. But aren't those beautiful words, the steadfast love of the Lord? Oftentimes, it's also translated as gracious. His grace itself. Knowing who Jesus is, that he is God, you can imagine what that love looked like, even if it was for this brief time. Jesus loved him enough to tell him these words. You lack one thing, and go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Now, isn't this where it gets tough for all of us? Is that what Jesus is asking me to do? If you're not asking that question, maybe you should be. If you are asking that question, take some heart because maybe he's telling you to do that. Maybe he's telling you to do something else. But surely he is asking you a similar question that demands more than what most of us really are comfortable giving. See, in this, we get at this touchy subject of money that Jesus addresses more than any other subject. 
Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is going back to the first commandment. He's just starting from the beginning. You say you've kept all the commandments. All right, let's, let's check them off one by one. You shall have no other gods before the Lord your God. How are you doing with that? In his Sermon on the Mount where he takes all of those commandments and he presses them in to a heart level and he says, look, he says, don't murder, but do you get angry? Look, don't commit adultery, but do you lust? Look, don't do the actual things, but in your heart, when you're coveting what other people want, when you, when you are lying to defend your own honor, When you even enter into the thoughts themselves, <coughs> you're breaking the commandment. But he doesn't even get there with this man. He's still on the first commandment. And it doesn't take much to see that this man loved his money more than he loved God. Money was his master. Money was his ruler. Not God. He went away disheartened. Now the question here is, what does Jesus want us to do with this? Obviously, he wanted this man to profess his love for God above everything else, to give all those things up that stood in his way of loving God. Now, some of you are saying, I don't really love money. I'm not rich. This doesn't apply to me. But does your anxiety oftentimes stem from the lack of money? Are there other things in your life that you love more than God? The key diagnostic for this is to ask yourself, if God took away something from me, if he asked me to give something up, and I'm talking anything now, if one of my children got cancer and died, if my spouse died in a car accident, if my work was taken away, if I couldn't do the things that I really love to do, recreation, if I lost function in my legs, if I, what is it if you had to give it up, you would choose to go away sad rather than loving God? Now, I want to go through what some of this means for our wealth and money briefly because we need to talk about specifics in this or we leave it outside of that. But, but you can take some of these specifics and apply it in some of the places that you may be tempted to love things more than you love God. A few points. Here's the first point. Money in itself is not evil. The love of money, the Bible says... The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You find many people in the Bible who have great wealth, 
Job, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, wealthy patrons who support Jesus' work in ministry, who don't just give everything to the poor, they continue to have their wealth. Joseph of Arimathea, who is the wealthy man who provides a tomb for Jesus after he is crucified. Wealth in itself is not evil. Even you can see here, Jesus asked this man to give 100% of his wealth away. But in Luke, we read of another man, Zacchaeus, who he says, no, give 50% of your wealth away. Well, how much is the question? How much is enough? And it's important to understand a, a few principles. The first principle is the principle of the tithe. That's presented in the Old Testament. You say, well, that's an Old Testament law. It doesn't apply anymore. But what does Jesus say in his Sermon on the Mount? He says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The only laws that he does away with from the Old Testament are the laws that were ceremonial, that pointed people to Christ. The sacrificial laws, for example. The food laws, for example. Let me ask you this question. If on this side of the cross we have received and understand and comprehend more of God's graciousness than they did in the Old Testament, why would we think that our call to be gracious and generous in response would be anything less than what God called them to be? So the principle of 10% stands, but is that enough? Is that all Christ is asking? And these two examples in particular press us further. The example of the early church as they gathered together in Jerusalem and some had needs and they were giving all kinds of things, some of them everything they had to the church so that the, the wealth could be redistributed. This is something very different from communism, it's important to point out. But if your wealth is standing in the way of your love for Christ, maybe Jesus is saying to you, you need to give a big percentage of your wealth away. Let me ask it a different way. If you're on the side where you say, I have so many expenses, I can't afford to give even the 10%, much less more than that, go back again to the Old Testament and find the principle that God gives, and that is first that all things belong to God and that we are just tenants, caretakers. And one of the things that demonstrates whether our love for God is there or not is whether we give out of the first fruits of what we receive or out of the leftovers. Last principle here. When you give, do you give to the point of feeling the effect of what you give? Do you give to the point of experiencing sacrifice, of doing something, doing without something that you love? The 
Because don't you see, these are the two things that Jesus wants us to see about himself first and foremost, that he is the firstborn over all creation we've been reading recently from Colossians. What does that mean? He is the first fruits. He is the first one. He gives himself out of his love for you. He sacrifices what he has known and loved most. It wasn't his wealth. It wasn't his position of power or authority or his creativeness or anything else. What did he love the most? It was his fellowship, his love that he experienced, unbroken relationship with God the Father. And he gave that up, receiving your sins in him and giving you his righteousness, experiencing the type of brokenness and relationship with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, in a way that was so overwhelming that he cried out to God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, why have you forsaken me? The perfect unity of the God. It was broken to give you what you need. To demonstrate what true sacrifice and giving is. He didn't just give 10% of himself. He gave all of himself for you. And this was, this was going to be difficult for people to understand. But the disciples who he's training right now needed to understand it first so that they could share it with others. Wealth can be a great blessing, but wealth can also be an incredible curse. How difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And we see this all around us. Who are the last people you expect to come visit the church? Those who have everything they need and don't perceive any of their own needs. But Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed who can understand their own poverty before God. And like we've been saying the last few weeks, none of us is outside of that poverty. None of us can squeeze that camel through the eye of a needle. It is impossible for human beings, but it is possible by God who came to die for your sins. To enact this great transfer. To take your balance sheet. Good works, bad works. And to take all of those works and all the ways you keep trying to stock up that good works. And I'm not saying you don't understand the concept of saved by grace alone, by faith alone. But how often do we still look at those good works not just to earn favor before God, but to, but to calm our spirits at night. To give us a sense of identity, of purpose, of who we are. When Jesus wants us to look and to gaze on his balance sheet. And the things that he did for you. The good was all here and there was nothing bad until the cross when he took everything on your bad and he put it on his. All of your liabilities, he put it right there on his liabilities. But he didn't stop there. He took all of his good and he gave it to you. 
Now listen, if we beheld that kind of glory, if we looked on that kind of glory more with, with, with a greater understanding, with, a, with, with a, a fuller concept of the beauty of that, would we not experience joy in a new way in our life? Would our giving of the 10% and even more than the 10% not yield an incredible amount of joy? Transform our heart and mind and purpose. I think most of us don't even give us a, ourselves a chance to experience it because we, we, we do what this rich young man did. We say, maybe I'll try when I have more money. I can't do this right now. But don't you see the gospel calls for today? We don't know. You may die of cancer tomorrow. You may have a brain tumor. You don't even know about it right now. You may get in a car accident tomorrow. The time is now and the call is for us to do this and respond to the graciousness and the goodness of Christ. With an act of obedience. Isn't it interesting? I just explained further into the future how this all works out, but... Jesus leaves the people in suspense here. He doesn't explain it. He says it's impossible for man, but possible for God, and then he stops. Well, this is the season we're in leading up to Christmas. I'm not making as big a deal of Advent this year with the, uh, the wreath and all of that. Um, I do have the banners that, that I suppose I should say I sowed. Uh, I'm man enough to, to, to admit that. But I'll tell you, the toughest part of sewing is threading that needle, right? Threading that needle. How many of us keep trying to thread the needle ourselves and don't come after Christ and follow Him? So look, even if you don't understand all that's coming, we're going to get to that. The call to you is to come and to follow Christ. Hear His voice and follow Him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for giving us the hard sayings, the hard teachings that address the, the cancers in our lives, the places where we are most sick and unable to follow you, to love you, to obey your commands. Lord, may we experience your grace now, even your forgiveness for the ways that we have stolen from you. The ways that we look to our own goodness to satisfy the longing question, are we good enough? Father, we pray all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.